Hello, welcome to Pod Songs. I'm Jack Stafford, and I interview inspiring people in service to others as inspiration for a new song. Today, I'm speaking with a cult underground figure, author, journalist, and activist pushing for liberalizing copyright laws, and a proponent of the Creative Commons organization. Mostly, he writes fiction books about digital rights management, file sharing, post scarcity economics. Now, they don't sound like sexy subjects, but he has a huge following among teens and adults alike.、Um, his first big hit was Little Brother, about surveillance systems, and the Department of Homeland Security's attacks on the Bill of Rights. Now, that book is actually used as training material for new NSA recruits to give them a different point of view. I bet that's something he never predicted when he wrote it. So let's step into the future with Corey. Doctor Rowe. Getting an education from all my podcast guests as I、uh, as I go through, as it is whenever you run a podcast. And can I describe you as a futurist? Is that a way? Is that a good? Oh, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, people who claim to know the future are either kidding themselves or you,、uh, and、um, science fiction writers doubly so. There is nothing sadder than、uh, someone who thinks that because they make up futuristic parables, they're Nostradamus. So yes, no, please don't call me a futurist. <laughs> I saw one quote about you, Cory Doctor. Doesn't just write about the future. I think he lives there. Yeah, that was Kelly Link being very, very kind many years ago. But you know, hyperbole aside,、uh, I am someone who uses the device of futuristic parables to commentate on the present day.、Uh, and of course, you know, the the present is the standing wave that is becoming the future.、Mm -hmm. So things that you write about the present have、uh, enormous bearing on the future. To say nothing of the fact that the things that you write about the future might change how people approach the future as it arrives, and actually have a direct impact on it, that's far more interesting than being a, a fortune teller. You know, to be someone who can actually change the future as opposed to predicting it, which is, you know, ultimately this very fatalistic idea, right? This this idea that like the future is going to arrive no matter what we do,、mm -hmm. basically says that human beings are just sort of.、Um, We're like grains of sand in an hourglass that is、uh, tipped this way and that by the great forces of history, as opposed to like actors on the world stage whose actions change the way that history plays out. So yeah, I'm I'm far more interested in being an activist than a futurist. But your work does influence the future because I know a lot of people have read Little Brother, and they say that it influences their thinking and opens their eyes to many things. So yeah, yeah, definitely are. Yeah, I mean, I hope I hope that's true. I, certainly, you know, Little Brother and the other novels in the series、uh, have resulted in lots of people who work in the industry coming to me and saying, you know, I、um, was just approaching the field as a、uh, as a job or as a fascination, or I never even thought of getting into the field. But when I read Little Brother, I became alive to both the、um, Possibilities of technology to liberate us, and the risks of technology in service of oppressing us, and decided which of those things I was going to put my thumb on the scales for, and embarked on a career as a technologist, as a cyber lawyer, a human rights activist.、Uh, you know, there are all kinds of people from from different areas of the field who who attribute their entry into the field to me. That is an enormous honor. I mean, you know, frankly, like.、Uh, 
making up pretend stories to help people pass the long slog from the cradle to the grave is, you know, it's a it's a living. But like, uh, it's very little compared to actually having changed the way people think about and approach really important issues in the world. That's a that's a far greater reward than knowing that you you help someone drop off to sleep one sleepless night. <laughs> so I, I don't claim I'm calling you for an education because I I can't claim to know anything about this or about the dangers, but I um I, I write a song about every interview, so mm -hmm. I'd like to. What is the most important issue to write? Because with your work, your work covers such a wide area. If I was going to write a song, if we can narrow it down, please, what would it be? Well, you know, I think that there is um that that what I try to do is break through a false binary, a false dichotomy. Uh, between the idea of technology as oppressor and technology as liberator and move into a better, more um, nuanced view of technology as something that uh, could be harnessed by us or that could be harnessed against us, that, you know, it will all be great if we don't screw it up. And, you know, subsidiary to that are things like, um, you know, uh, um, the the idea that uh, of technological self-determination and um uh of uh pluralism right so like it doesn't matter if you can make a free choice if there's nothing to choose from so we need pluralism we need lots of different centers of technological control and then you need the, the freedom to choose among them as uh, a necessary but insufficient precursor to a better future. I mean, you know, people still might make unwise choices. We still might have lots that we will have lots of work to do. If you imagine the world rearrayed, you know, at, at the click of your fingers, such that instead of there being a couple of hegemonic social media services or search engines, whatever, there are hundreds of them, we would still have lots of work to do to help people make wise choices. But uh, those that that is... Um, uh, better work to do than to ensure that people have choices at all, right? If they don't have choices at all, then we're stuffed. And we are stuck now with, with, with the monopolies. We certainly are, yeah. Okay. So do you think that's the biggest the theme in your work, these, these monopolies who've, who've, who've lifted up the ladder? Um, I, I would say that it's, um, it's not monopolies per se, it's monopolies effect on, on pluralism and self-determination that, uh, you know, we know how the monopolies arose. There are a lot of exotic theories about tech monopolism that lean on things like network effects or first mover advantage, but they're not really well supported in the evidence. I think that the preponderance of evidence is that the reason we have monopolies is we stopped enforcing anti-monopoly law. And, and that's why we've got monopolies, not just in tech, where, you know, we can talk about first mover advantage and network effects, but also in like beer, where there's no articulatable first network, first mover advantage, right? There's, there's a monopoly in athletic shoes, right? The, the, you know, it's, the, you know, they do not have network effects. They've just got the ability to like buy up any nascent competitor, merge with any major competitor, create vertical monopolies where they can control retail channels and prevent new new market entrants that refuse to be bought out or merged with. I mean, it, that's the that's the actual mechanism of monopoly, and you know, it's it's uh, part of a wider project of increasing inequality. And uh, you know, if you want to pin down like kind of where I where I land on all of this. It's that the difference between the right and the left is that the left believes that some people or the right believes that some people were born to rule. 
um, and uh, that there are different mechanisms for selecting that person, depending on what kind of right winger you are. There are people who believe that you uh, create a, a market and the market will find those that are born to rule through a kind of invisible hand. And there's people who believe that you can figure out who's born to rule by like, who manages to pull a sword out of a stone, right? <laughs> and uh, or you know the people who are anointed by God or whatever, right? Um, and uh, you know this is how you can understand the right as a political philosophy, because after all, within the right you have Christian dominionists, you have Hindu nationalists, you have uh, neo Nazis, you have uh, hardcore finance libertarians, you have imperialists of all stripes, you have, you know, American imperialists, British imperialists, uh, Chinese imperialists. So like, what do they all have in common? Well, what they all have in common is the belief that some people were born to be subjugated to others, and that the world is best when those who were born to rule make decisions for the rest of us. And, um, you know, the, the project of neoliberalism, the last 40 years, the, the kind of Thatcher, Reagan, Pinochet, you know, Brian Mulroney, Helmut Kohl project has been to uh, reconfigure the world so that the rulers can find their way to the top so that we can realize kind of a Plato's Republic. And so, you know, the reason we dismantled anti-monopoly rules is because in the view of the right, they stood in the way of the market deciding who should control huge swaths of our lives. Uh, you know, that the market would would find these efficiencies in monopoly. They would look down upon it, it would look down upon us and through some complex mechanism, bring someone to the fore who would own all the railroads because they were the best person at railroading and someone else who would own all the aluminium and someone else who would own all of the computer networks and whatever. And, you know, you, you smile at all the aluminium, but, um, you know, uh, Mellon, who is the secretary of the treasury, the guy for whom Carnegie Mellon is named during the Gilded Age, owned all the aluminum in the world, right? They called him the man who owned an element. Uh, he like would do things like inveigle the US government into entering in trade agreements with Chile so that his company could get the franchise for all the Chilean aluminum. Uh, he owned Alcoa, right? It was the largest aluminum company in the world and literally the world majority of world's aluminum belonged to him. And so, you know, the, the, the view of the neoliberal project is that really that like, Mellon should have owned the aluminium, that he was born, he was imbued by his creator with the wisdom, skills, and proclivities to, you know, correctly manage the world supply of an element. And that we know that because the market reached down and put him atop a pyramid of tin cans, right? And so that made him the pharaoh of aluminium. And, and um, they view all efforts to create pluralism, to create a kind of level playing field, uh, to create a system where we're recognized for our individual talents rather than, you know, kind of being ranked in a pyramid, instead being arrayed in a web of people who have different suitabilities to different things, none of which is more important than the other, uh, but all of which are necessary and good. You know, the, the janitor at the high tech firm who is a subcontractor wearing a tabard and, and a hairnet and earning $11 an hour is just as important as the engineer who gets free kombucha and massages on Wednesdays uh, and $200,000 a year in stock grants, because without the janitor, the engineer would die of listeria, mm. right? So, you know, they're both important and they exist in a web alongside of each other, not in a, um, a hierarchy with one on top of the other. And, uh, you know, the, the rise of monopolies is part of a wider project, which is the rise of modern um, aristocracies. 
And, you know, the reason I care about uh, technological self-determination is because I think it's an anti-oligarchic force that the, you know, the thing that computers and networks do in addition to all the other things they do, like entertaining us and computing things for us as they allow us to communicate with one another to make common cause and agitate for change. And that is the necessary insufficient precondition for solving the climate emergency, for solving the oligarchy emergency, for, you know, addressing all of our woes. You know, we, we're not going to solve our problems by finding a wise king and asking them to decide how our world should be run. We're going to solve our problems through collective action that involves legitimacy and collective buy-in. I mean, you can see what happens, you know, for example, with um, contact tracing and uh, exposure notification and distancing and uh, mandates where the people who bring them down are not viewed as trustworthy or honest brokers. Uh, nobody uh, abides by the rules and and they in invent conspiratorial explanations for the rules they say oh the rules are there to uh you know soften you up for some killing blow that will take away all your freedom uh and and as a result we sicken and die and so there you know even if you were a wise king who did know the right rules for all of us if people didn't trust your rules there's no amount of enforcement that will make those rules work because th they are not viewed as legitimate. You just you just can't tighten the net tight enough to keep the rules working. I mean, China's trying it in Xinjiang province. They put a million people in concentration camps. They practiced punitive rape and forced labor and torture, and they still haven't convinced uh, Turkic Muslims in and other members of religious ethnic minorities in the West to embrace, you know, uh, the party ideology. So, you know, if that didn't work, right, if like totalizing pervasive surveillance with the unlimited application of state violence failed to stand in for legitimacy, <laughs> then I think we've just got to go back to the drawing board on whether coercion is going to solve these problems or whether we need to have this, this sense of shared destiny and the legitimacy that arises from it. Okay, so you'd think technology would be one of the one of the ways immune to this monopoly because the smartest brains can think of uh, other networks and things like that. I mean, you can understand how aluminum or things like that because you need a lot of resources, you know, you need a lot of investment. Mm -hmm. But how come? Because AT and T was broken up, and you know, people these other companies grew up, and now they've how have they pulled the ladder up? How is this? How has this happened? Yeah. So you mentioned the AT&T breakup. There's a kind of little story about this, which is that in the, um, you know, 1979, I got my first computer, an Apple II Plus with a modem. And there were bulletin boards and there were bulletin boards all around, including bulletin boards in the U.S. And uh, by 1982, they had really proliferated. And one of the reasons they proliferated is that AT&T had been broken up. And so the breakup of AT&T cleared the way for all kinds of stuff involving modems and telecommunications that AT&T had been hostile to. Um, the, the way to understand that is that AT&T was very committed to charging for each uh, component of a telecom service. So, you know, you may remember that there was a time when caller ID cost extra on your phone bill. 
right? So knowing who was ringing before he picked up the phone cost extra. And that's really like intrinsic to the under, to the like business model of the telecoms industry, that if you can think of a new thing to do, you should be able to charge money for it. Now compare that with email, right? Email is like a phone call. It's a message potentially from a stranger, potentially from a friend. And AT&T doesn't get to stick its nose in and say to read the from line before you open the email is going to cost an extra dollar a month, right? The, the email comes with a from line and a subject line preview, even though that's clearly a thing that has value, right? If you, com- if you think of two email systems, right, one that doesn't have see the from line in the subject before you open it, one that does, the second one's more valuable. And the AT&T theory goes, if there's value, someone should have the right to extract money for it, if value, then right. And, uh, and, and so AT&T really didn't like modems because they correctly understood that once data was a service on top of a basic rate uh, uh, network, that that network would become a commodity, that you couldn't upcharge for long distance or for messaging or for caller ID or for any of those other things. You, you know, you may remember Minitel. There were versions of it in most countries where literally you got charged by the keystroke for using network services. And that was that was considered a, um, you know, like an efficient network, right? An efficient business because it meant that the person who was providing value had the incentive to do it. And the more value you provided, the more money you got. And it sucked. And so you get online in the early 80s and you're in this world of BBSs that was only possible because of the AT&T breakup. And then in 1984, you got this huge cohort of friends on the network because they all went out and bought IBM PC clones. And the reason that they were able to get IBM PCs and IBM PC clones is that IBM, although it hadn't been broken up by the DOJ, spent 12 years in antitrust hell before the DOJ walked away from the fight. Every one of those years, IBM spent more on lawyers to fight that case than all of the DOJ lawyers working on all antitrust cases combined. And AT&T was um, humiliated and traumatized by the experience, or, or IBM rather. And when the, um, uh, the experience was over, every time they were at a juncture where they could do something that would you know, increase a monopoly power, and something that would be more pluralistic, they went for the latter, not because they'd had a change of heart, but because they were terrified of spending another 12 years, you know, being tied to the bumper of the DOJ's truck, dragged up and down, you know, a gravel road, right? And so when they needed an operating system for the PC, they were like, oh God, the DOJ hates it when one company makes both hardware and software. We'll get a couple of nerds named Paul Allen and and Bill Gates to supply the operating system. And then when this like uh, queer punk hardware engineer who lives a couple of miles from here in L.A., Tom Jennings, was hired by Phoenix to reverse engineer the ROM on the PC, they didn't come after them. And so those ROMs went into Gateway, Dell, Compaq, and all those other Mm -hmm. PC clones, right? Because IBM just didn't want to get into it again with the DOJ's lawyers. And, and and then, you know, um, along came the DOJ again to punish Microsoft for abusing its monopoly. And uh, th- although, again, Microsoft escaped without being broken up, they were traumatized in the same way that IBM was. So when a couple of guys named Larry and Sergey, uh, you know, left their Stanford <laughs> lab and started a company called Google, rather than attacking them the way that they attacked Netscape, Microsoft just sort of to put its hands up and and step back and let Google grow. And so 
you know, that that kind of um, anti-monopoly energy has been really important to maintaining like dynamism in the field. But uh, the thing is that it came at the end of the antitrust era. The antitrust era really starts in the New Deal uh, after the Gilded Age, after the Depression, after the election of FDR, and it ends in the Thatcher and Reagan era. And so, you know, the the reason that AT&T was able to re-merge with all the companies that had been broken up from is not because of an intrinsic flaw in antitrust. It's because they just stopped enforcing antitrust. It was like the last thing they did. And, you know, the Microsoft enforcement action, the reason it failed is not because Microsoft was innocent, but because their heart wasn't really in it. And... Um, what you have now are these companies that only exist because of the power of antitrust, of anti-monopoly enforcement to clear the like a space in the canopy so that green shoots can sprout, uh, now ensuring that no one ever cuts down their mighty tree trunks <laughs> or trims their the, the, the crown because um, you know, they've been allowed to grow through monopolistic tactics by merging with major competitors with, you know, using predatory tactics to destroy new market entrants, buying up new market entrants in a predatory way, the way Zuckerberg did with uh, Instagram and WhatsApp, specifically because they understood that users were choosing them rather than Facebook and buying them so that users wouldn't have a choice. That even if they chose Instagram, they'd still be choosing Facebook, right? To, to eliminate that element of self-determination by eliminating pluralism. And, uh, you know, the, 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 you know, result of this has been that you have these highly concentrated industries and a highly concentrated industry has two real advantages. The first is they have more profits, right? Uh, monopoly, the economists call them monopoly rents. When you don't have to compete, you can extract more profits because you don't have to worry about your competitors charging a lower price or offering a better price to your your um, distributors or your uh, your um, suppliers and so you can keep more of the money on your side of the balance sheet and keep it from you know le leaking out of the organization into other people in the value chain uh, you know this is why musicians are getting such a raw deal from like Spotify uh, Spotify will take in for example 80 million dollars from UMG for the um, uh, quarter uh, as a guaranteed payment for the streams, then UMG negotiates an extremely low per stream rate so that the end of the quarter, uh, the attributable revenue, the revenue that can be attributed to a specific mu musician only comes out to 50 million and 30 million of that guaranteed payment just goes straight to UMG's shareholders. And so, you know, you see how having uh, concentration within the industry allows the industry to squeeze its suppliers, which is, you know, often labor, but also smaller firms, and to, to just, um, you know, reduce the, their material circumstances to an untenable level, whereupon they just start to collapse or become absorbed into the, the larger firms as kind of low-waged employees or contractors. Um, and so they have this excess rent that they get from being able to do dirty tricks. And then they have a small enough number of entities in the industry that they can agree on how to spend the excess rent to buy the policies that will preserve their monopoly. Um, you know, solving collective action is the hardest problem that we have as a species. It's why we can't do anything about climate change and why we're struggling to deal with vaccines and so on. And as anyone who's ever tried to organize a dinner knows, figuring out what five people want to eat is a lot easier than figuring out what 50 people want to eat. Mm -hmm. And uh, when an industry fits around a single dinner table, they can all figure out what they want to do.
And uh, we have seen the proliferation of policies that disadvantage new market entrants and also non-traditional market entrants, cooperatives, uh, tinkerers, um, even even you know quangos like like uh, quasi state entities and so on. Um, whether that's software patents or procurement rules or anti circumvention rules or new things like uh, or Oracle is arguing that it should have a copyright uh, over APIs in the Supreme Court, and all of these things shut down the the tools that these companies themselves use to grow. Mm. They, they eliminate the possibility that these comp- that that anyone will do unto them what they have done unto others. So it's just, you know, it's pulling up the ladder behind you. Um, and, you know, they offer the same justification that everyone who's ever pulled up the ladder behind them does. They say, when we went up the ladder, that was the legitimate progress of society. That was, um, you know, the, the people who had been anointed to rule, finding their way to the top. When you chase us up the ladder, that is people who belong at the bottom of the pyramid, illegitimately trying to scale its heights, uh, get back down to the bottom of the, the, the tin can pyramid. I own all the aluminium. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, Google. And these guys don't seem very traumatized by the lawsuits, though. They've been involved in many. Oh, well, wait, wait. It's going to get ugly. They're going to get deposed, right? They're going to get put on the stand. I mean, it's interesting because like the the big tech companies are split now between companies that have got um, like professional managers that aren't organized around cults of personality, uh, Microsoft, um, uh, Microsoft, Google, for sure, and a couple others are, are like that, Salesforce, I think. And then there are the ones that are still organized like cults of personality, like, like Microsoft was in the Gates era, wh- which are like Facebook and Twitter uh and you know uh, other ones like that netflix um where you have these these sort of outsized individuals who are um synonymous for their com- with their companies right and uh those people will be not it'll be they're not managers who mismanaged a company they are great villains of history <laughs> who acted who personally t- undertook action for their own firm there's a kind of moral directness to the way that we talk about these founders it's it's not fair right i think that you know it's 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 every bit as true that the uh, you know faceless professional managers that operate you know that run google or or microsoft are as culpable as zuckerberg is um but you know, when Zuckerberg is on the stand, he is not on stand merely as the leader of Facebook. He's on stand as Zuckerberg. And that is not true if Sundar Pinchai is on the stand. Tim Cook would be on the stand, I think, as the face of Apple. He's probably like the intermediate case. Mm-hmm. He's sort of betwixt and between. Um, you know, Larry Ellison would definitely be the face of Oracle, you know. So what does that mean then? What would they could you could see them split into different camps or? Oh, I think there will be some of that for sure. I, I, I think that, um, you know, Google has actually planned for that from the start. I think the reason that Alphabet exists, you know, Alphabet is this like uh, corporate structure they have, is to um, create suggested fracture lines for an antitrust breakup that are preferential to the company. Uh, because it's like, it would be a nonsensical fracture line to break the company up on, right? Like, you know, it's, it's it, what they've done through Alphabet 
is they've taken all the stupid vanity projects and made them look like they sit as co-equals with the projects that are genuinely monopolistic. And they've taken the projects that are genuinely monopolistic and by not splitting them into multiple pieces like search and ads, for example, by having search and ads under one umbrella, they create the uh, kind of implicit assumption that uh, they're indivisible. And so they, 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 you know, if, if like, if you're um, an extremely naive regulator and you, you kind of look at the uh, corporate structure of Google of Alphabet, you're like, all right, well, clearly we can't let the division that makes irrelevant Wi-Fi balloons be connected to the vision that fails to make smart cities. We'll split those up and that will be our anti-monopoly enforcement. But you never try to drive a chisel between the ads and the search, which is actually where all the anti-monopoly stuff is going on. So they thought ahead. I think so for <laughs> sure. Yeah, no. And I, and I, and I think that it, uh, it won't work. Right. I think, and I think that when it, when it comes, they're going to be really, um, freaked out and it's going to be traumatic and there's going to be lots of memos that come out there's a lot of people within those large companies that have not been served well by them whether that's contractors or you know we saw 20,000 googlers walk out last year a year before last over um, sexual harassment and assault in the workplace and the fact that they paid the android founder 80 million dollars to go away when it came out that he'd been sexually assaulting his his juniors um so you know there are a lot of googlers who, you know, but for, you know, the, the fact that the company seems so all powerful would be speaking out and they will, uh, you know, this is happening within Amazon, for example, Amazon's a good company, a good example of a company that's a cult of personality, right? That, you know, when, when Jeff Bezos is on the stand, he's on the stand as Jeff Bezos and he's on the stand as Amazon. Uh, and, and yeah, it will be personal for him. Uh, in a way that it, it wouldn't be necessarily for like Sundar Pinchai. So you're, so you're saying that this this situation will come to an end because of regulation and not because of some revolu some grassroots revolution? I think that it's iterative. I think that what you get is, um, you know, there are these four forces that regulate our world, code, norms, markets, and law, right? What's, what's um, like technologically possible, what's socially acceptable, what's profitable, and what's lawful. And they uh, they interact with each other. They feed back on one another. They're not really easily separatable. But uh, you know, if, if something is immoral, it's harder to make it legal and easier to ban it. Mm. So there will be lots of moral discourse, right? Normative discourse about whether or not what big tech does is right or wrong, as opposed to legal or illegal. But that will feed into what's legal or illegal, right? That'll feed into regulation. Moreover the uh, regulation and moral sentiment will create um, the demand for tools and markets that those tools will enter. So you'll have technologists building stuff that we haven't seen technologists building in a long time. Like no one's really taken a serious hack at building a search engine in like a decade, oh, yeah, right? Yeah. You know, except one. for like Microsoft, right? Except for Bing, you know, no one, no one has gone, no one has shown up at like Kleiner Perkins or any of these other VCs and said, I'm going to make a search engine. It's just going to be a standalone search engine. It's not going to have like uh, all the other stuff Google's got attached to it, but it'll be better than Google, have better search results than Google. I, I need $80 million, right? Nobody does that anymore. So there'll be lots of 
like things that people build that will prove that things can be done, that will prove the moral case that things should be done, that will create the markets, uh, market forces and the investment capital to do the things that will create the regulation that puts pressure on these firms. I mean, you know, one of the things that makes these firms so regulation proof is that they have achieved the trick of convincing us that they are um, inevitable. Mm. And so, you know, right now, the the bulk of regulation that we see proposed for these firms and certainly what like they themselves advocate for when Zuckerberg talks about the need for a regulated space, what they want is is regulation like the Magna Carta, right? Regulation that recognizes the divine right of kings, but asks the king to be uh, to suffer himself to be draped with the golden chains of office by an aristocracy that will tell him what his duty to the to the nation is. Uh, and then he will, you know, consider this, uh, this, you know, the, the, these uh, imprecations from his aristocrats and in his own divine judgment, decide which of those he will take on and which he won't. And that's like, that's Facebook's version of regulation, right? Not all regulation is created equal. Uh, and so I, I think that um, you'll get uh, uh, regulation that will be pro-pluralistic instead of regulation that will be about um, getting the buggers to behave, right? I think we, we will get regulation grounded in the idea of fixing the internet rather than regulation grounded in the idea of fixing the tech companies, because the tech companies can go fuck themselves, right? We've got to save the internet. <laughs> but I've heard you say we're in a turnkey era of surveillance and control. So yeah. would, that, would that also bring an end to that or in, in no way at all? Well, you know, the, the thing about turnkey surveillance is that it, it rests on um, a kind of toxic dynamic where you have firms that over collect and that are incentivized to design devices that you can't prevent from collecting data. Uh, and then you have states that uh, loot the firm's repositories of our data at will and, and you know, you treat them as a kind of off the books, uh, uh, low cost adjunct to their surveillance capability, to their law enforcement and public safety capability. And as a result, they're incentivized not to um, do anything to rein in the, the surveillance excesses of the firms. And so we have to break this dynamic, right? We, we have to, to get rid of public surveillance, we have to get rid of private surveillance. To get rid of private surveillance, we have to get rid of public surveillance. And, and you know, the, the people who pose this as two separate forces have a, a really gross misapprehension about how this stuff works. Uh, you know, I, I sometimes go and speak in Silicon Valley about this stuff. And those people say, you know, I don't mind if Google spies on me. All they want to do is show me better ads. I'd like better ads, right? Uh, but uh, the NSA, well, those are the people who are too stupid to get jobs at Google. Who the hell knows what they're going to do with my data? I don't want them spying on me at all. And then I'll go to like West Point or some other, you know, kind of Beltway or intelligence agency or whatever. And they will say, like, look, I've got security clearance. And to get that, I had to tell Uncle Sam everything and expose all the intimate secrets of my life. They, I don't care if the government's spying on me. They already know everything. But, you know, Google, Facebook, those, you know, you know, rapacious sons of Manon would sell their mother for a nickel. The last thing I want is them spying on me. And, and what they neither of the, them appreciate is that the reason that tech companies are allowed to spy on you is that governments want to plunder their data. And so if you want tech companies to stop spying on you, you have to convince the government to stop spying on you. And if you want the government to stop spying on you, you have to ban tech companies from spying on you. Okay. <laughs> 
You also, I've heard you say about DRMs, they're in everything and um, they're a key problem as well. Yeah, I mean, this is just more more oligarchic stuff, right? Uh, you know, DRM as a technology is moderately effective, um, generally doesn't survive contact with the real world for very long, uh, tends to be, um, uh, you know, more of a nuisance than anything. But DRM in combination with a system of global laws like uh, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, Article 6 of the European Copyright Directive, uh, Canada's Bill C-11, I want to say, the Australia-US Free Trade Agreement, uh, Bill 92A in uh, New Zealand, Hadopi in France, and so on. These these rules all ban removing DRM or exposing its, its defects to public scrutiny and or, or making tools to help people bypass it. And as a result, uh, firms have realized that if they design their products such that uh, using them in ways that benefit you and not the firm shareholders requires bypassing DRM, then doing things that displease shareholders becomes a felony, becomes becomes a literal crime. So, you know, any company that can conjure up a doctrine of felony contempt of business model will, mm. right? They, they just There's just no way that they can pass on that temptation over the long term. And if they do, well, they will be outcompeted by a rival who figures out how to force you to arrange your affairs to their benefit. And, and so um, we see this metastasis of DRM and it has lots of consequences, not merely that we are ripped off, although we are, right? That we have to, you know, get our car fixed at the official mechanic. We have to get our phone fixed at the Genius Bar and so on. Um, but also that um, these devices are designed in such a way that anyone who audits them and reveals their defects faces both criminal and civil liability because revealing those defects might weaken the DRM. And so you have these unauditable attack surfaces for this ever widening constellation of devices that are ever more intimately bound up in our lives. You know, the, the medical implants, the um, infrastructure systems in our houses and our vehicles and our workplaces uh, and uh, everything in between, you know, from the most personal to the most meta, your body in a computer, a computer in your body, all governed by DRM that is designed to treat you as its adversary, that is unlawful to audit and publish on. Um, and that, you know, as as almost an incidental element, although it's this is the incitement to it, um, also treats you as like an ambulatory wallet to extract value from. So even if you buy something and you're the legal owner of a, for a toaster or a tractor or a telephone and, and you try to, you could open it, you could be breaking the law. Yeah, yeah. Like, like you know, your iPhone belongs to you, but jailbreaking it so that, or, you know, making a tool to help people jailbreak it so that they can install third-party apps of their choosing rather than the apps that Apple has blessed is is a crime it's a it's a felony uh and so you know finding um uh you know when companies uh do that what they do is they erode this idea of of property itself you know the there's um an old uh uh like property law baseline from uh blackstone on property is a 17th century treaties that everyone reads in their uh their first year property <laughs> law class and he defines property as that which man enjoys sole and despotic dominion over to the exclusion of every other person in the universe right well like if if your printer can figure out when you're putting third-party ink in and punish you by bricking itself that is not property in the sense of sole and despotic dominion uh, likewise, if you know your ventilator at the hospital 
is a Medtronic ventilator, and it can tell that the person who swapped a monitor from a dead ventilator into one that had a broken screen wasn't working for Medtronics and didn't give them the $180 for the service call, then it can lock itself up and let the patient die, which is another thing that's happening during the pandemic. And so, yeah, this, 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 this notion of property rights, which, you know, is a complicated notion and not an unalloyed good, but pretty bedrock to um, the ideology, the, the, the pledged ideology of uh, people who um, swear by corporations and their efficiency, those property rights are in retreat for all but corporations, mm. right? For all but the, these like sort of transnational, transhuman colony organisms that see us as their inconvenient gut flora. It's hard, hard writing about the, the present, let alone writing about the future. I mean, we're in this kind of Marxist capitalist, who knows where we are? I mean, it's, we're not in... Well, I think that there's, I mean, Marx obviously didn't get the, the specifics here. He didn't anticipate the Internet of Things. But, you know, Marxian theory gives you a lot of uh, um, a lot of, of tools for unpacking what's going on. I mean, you know, he, he kind of predicted a lot of this stuff. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's stuff that other people later on, uh, you know, people who who advocated markets as the right answer said, "Well, Marx got this right, but," and then went on to say, um, uh, <laughs> went on to say, you know, why they thought his conclusion was wrong. I don't think I can write a song about this. I need to do it some sort of. I need to go back to school to do this one. It's just way of my. I'm in way of my head on this. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, it's something that we all got to figure out, right? I, I, we've had a lot of um, we've had a lot of uh, obfuscation in economics and politics and political economy, where there's been this like deliberate attempt to uh, make the field as difficult to understand as possible. Mm -hmm. And you know, things must be as simple as they can be, and no simpler. But uh, you know, the movement of, of for example. Um, uh, uh, antitrust and monopoly from the idea that monopolies themselves are a bad idea to the idea that uh, monopolies are only bad when they create consumer harm is proven through these really difficult to follow economic uh, uh, equations really took monopoly enforcement from uh, a domain where we could uh, figure out um, what we were, you know, whether or not we had a monopoly problem to one where we just have to trust the experts to tell us whether a monopoly is a problem. And that has not been uh, great for us. It's not the free market, is it? I mean, so you, you're, um, you were doing an, your, your audio book by yourself for your last book. Yeah, I just did. It's, it's out. Yeah. So how is that going? Because they, you wanted to sell it through, uh, if you do it through Amazon, they have a DRM in there. And you said... Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, so I said no, and I and I and I retailed it myself first as a um, uh, first as a Kickstarter where I, I pre-sold copies, and now it's in all of the um, uh, uh, online audiobook sellers, with the exception of Apple and Amazon, who require DRM. And so it's um, uh, it's doing pretty well. I mean, the initial sale, including uh, some some premium items and and the ebook and so on generated $270,000 gross of which about 128 or $130,000 no it was $150,000 went to me wow. uh, after and then my expenses on it were in the kind of $20,000 range amazing, so 
you know, about $110,000 before tax. And that's a really good sum of money, right? That's, that's, uh, that exceeds uh, the money that I would have expected to get over a really, you know, protracted uh, period with the book. And now the book is in its kind of second life where it's, it's being sold on the, um, uh, on the, the, you know, marketplaces that you can buy audiobooks on. And I'm making a pretty good clip at it. I, I think, you know, this month, so this will be the first full month, or no, last month was the first full month after I closed out the Kickstarter. I probably made an extra, you know, three, $4,000 clear off of the book. Uh, and that's money that I don't, my agent doesn't get a piece of, my mm-hmm. publisher doesn't get a piece of. That's just straight into my pocket. So, you know, the normal royalty on audiobooks is about 20%. So to make $4,000, I would have had to have, through a publisher, done significantly more business than that. <laughs> I would have had to have done, you know, 5x that, $20,000 gross sales. Um, and I just got a, like this morning, I, I got another $1,000 from one retailer. So the retailers, you know, every month mm-hmm. they, they give you a check. So, you know, it ranges from a couple hundred dollars, the smaller ones to a couple thousand dollars for the larger ones. Um, and, you know, every time there's a, um, a discussion of it, every time it, it, the book is, is, you know, in the public eye, I'll, I'll, you know, I do a direct retail for my own website where I keep 100% of the revenue, uh, you know, with the other, with the distributors, it's more like 40% or, or, or you know, 50% in some cases, but with myself, it's hundred percent of the revenue. So the book is $25. <laughs> I'll, I'll give a talk and I'll sell like eight copies. And that's just like $200 that lands in my pocket for the day. Um, which is certainly, you know, more than my outgoings in a, in a day. So that, that has been really good. And it also, um, uh, one of the things that happened with the pre-sale of the book, uh, is that I also sold the eBooks on behalf of my publishers and uh, I get uh, a royalty on that. I get I get the thirty percent that Amazon would normally trouser for mm-hmm. the book, so that goes straight into my pocket. And then of the remaining seventy percent, twenty five percent comes back to me in April as a royalty. And so you know that hundred and fifty thousand dollars or whatever, that's the first tranche. And then of the seventy or eighty thousand dollars I remitted to publishers, about. 25% of it comes back to me. It's actually higher than that because uh, my UK deal is a 50-50 no advance split. So um, I'll get I'll get more money from them. So it, it generated a, a, a ton of revenue. It is probably not going to sell as well now that it's not an audible, mm-hmm. right? But the total sales volume of it will exceed what I would have gotten from audible. And so that was the right way to go. And it certainly paved the way for the next one. And I will do this with the next one. Uh, my agent in the new year will be negotiating my next book deal. It's uh, I'm, I'm nearly finished with my next novel. It's a, a book about, um, uh, it's uh, like a post-Green New Deal environmental utopian novel about truth and reconciliation with white nationalist militias. And he'll be negotiating that and he'll be negotiating the audio package and we'll be figuring out how to make the audio package work in such a way that it works for my publisher as well. And, and, you know, I, I could use their help. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it'd be great. I would give them a share of that money if they would, if they would uh, participate in the, in the work and the promotion, if we could join that stuff up, uh, which I think, you know, now that I've shown that I can, they will. Gosh. Yeah. Cause you started out with creative commons, you were giving your, your work away and now you're seeing the fruits of, of that labor. So. 
I certainly think that's the case. And, you know, one of the one of the ways where this is and, and you know, like I'm able to now with with time get a little more granular. So one of the things that I've learned over time is that it's particularly good for English speakers who don't live in English speaking territories. Uh, they are at the greatest disadvantage to acquiring a commercial product. And for the most part, they represent an affluent elite of those countries, right? People who are fluent and preferential English readers in Germany are mostly not expats from the Anglosphere. Mm. They're mostly really well-educated Germans with good jobs who've got lots of disposable income. And uh, I generate about 15% of my sales from what's called open territory, non-English non speaking countries, people who wanna buy English editions. Mm. And that's pretty cool, uh, especially since, um, the way that the publishing deals work, uh, if I'm selling the ebook or the audiobook there, even if I have a deal with my publisher for that ebook or audiobook, I am, for the purposes of a sale outside of the Anglosphere, the publisher, and I get 100% of that revenue. So, you know, my, that, that's about 10x of what I would get from uh, a traditional publisher. And so, with those German sales, if they're 10% of my sales, and it generates 10x ro the royalty, then it, it accounts for us an effectively a doubling of my income mm -hmm. uh, by by having those uh, out of market sales. I don't know if that's replicable, mm -hmm. right? I don't know if now that there's a greater availability of English language work in non English speaking territory, you could break in and, and discover an audience in that way, in the way that I did. But Certainly, uh, it worked really well for me. It was definitely a good move for me. That's so inspiring, for, you know, for other writers. And I've taken up so much of your time. Maybe I could just finish up with one selfish question: Is what sure what could I take away from that as a musician? Because you, as you said, Spotify is not given as a great deal. I have to, I think, get a, a song played about three hundred and twenty times to get a dollar. So, right, and you know, there's all these independent musicians thinking of these Spotify training training programs to so we we pay for adverts on on to, to send people to listen to our music on spotify so that we can get paid nothing. wow <laughs> we're you know i i mean there are the the reason i i undertook all of this was not merely because i thought it was the best thing for me it was to try and make the case for structural change and I think that there are, that what you're rubbing up against here are the limits of individual action against structural problems, right? Um, you know, you can't recycle your way out of climate change. Like even if you're really, really dil diligent about separating your waste, <laughs> climate change has a structural problem, uh, is a structural problem and will have a structural solution. And there are artists who have figured out how to make a go of it. Uh, you know, the, the, the kind of using Spotify to drive Patreon patrons, et cetera, et cetera, has been a well-trod path. And it works for a minority of artists in the same way that it must be said, all uh, ventures have worked for, for a minority of artists since the beginning of time. I mean, you know, the, the fraction of musicians who picked up a guitar and dreamt of making a living at it as uh, uh, versus the ones who actually did it uh, through all time, through all musicians, is like as close to zero as it's ever been and and will be until we have like fully funded arts programs <laughs> so you know markets markets just don't provide the jobs uh that artists right. want they don't provide the the opportunities that artists want um what i would say is that to the extent that you find yourself herded into someone else's platform 
like Spotify, like Amazon, uh, even if you're a writer and you find yourself herded into Audible, do it in the way that preserves your power to to the extent that you can to leave the platform. So today, you know, I, I write this daily newsletter and blog called uh, Pluralistic, and it starts off as Twitter threads because that's where I have the most followers. But all of those Twitter threads point back to the newsletter and the blog. And the idea is to use Twitter as a funnel to bring fans to a, a site that I control um, and to and I and, you know, so at the end of every day's threads, I'm like, you can read this whole thing in a much more elegant form, easier to follow form without any surveillance, because I don't have any tracking or anything just by going here and it's mm -hmm. free, right? It's, it, you don't have to have a login. You don't have to have a password. You just put in your RSS reader or you sign up for the email or you you um, visit it on the web, put, put it in your bookmark tab group that you open every morning, however it is you consume news. And the idea here is that whatever happens in the future, however I figure out how to make money off of this or turn it into something that matters to me for social change or for other reasons, that I will be... Uh, the, the extent to which I'm subject to the whims of people in a distant corporate boardroom is minimized. Mm -hmm. uh, and treat every decision that requires you not just to use a platform, but to make yourself reliant on that platform with real gravity. Treat it as, treat it as a, a, a serious potential downside and be willing to take a little less upfront now in exchange for maintaining that autonomy, because the odds are that you will never uh, succeed in the arts, right? That is the odds for every artist. Uh, but if you do, your ability to succeed, to, to turn that success into something that supports you will be directly related to the extent that you maintain control over your own platform, over your own distribution, your own contact with your fans, your own editorial choices, and so on. So, you know, by all means, do this podcast, but make sure you publish an RSS mm -hmm. feed and not just Bandcamp, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Mm -hmm. Put the RSS feed in the show description so that people who find it on Apple Podcasts can find the RSS because you're never going to have as much Google juice as Apple mm -hmm. will. So you use Apple's Google juice to direct people to non-Apple alternatives for subscribing to it. So that if Apple ever decides arbitrarily to remove, remove you from the podcast feed, you will have migrated as many people as possible off of getting your podcast through Apple and onto getting it through a mechanism where you aren't subject to those whims, where you have some autonomy, mm -hmm. self-determination. Yes, because uh, some podcasts have been, been edited and controlled, yeah. I tried to use. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, Apple has these ever-shifting rules, and they also, you know, sometimes play games with search results where they downrank things and so on. But you know, just generically, it's never good to to like, you know, those those companies. They just don't care about you. It's not that they're like necessarily actively trying to thwart you, but when they make a decision, if that decision harms you, that's not going to stay their hand if it helps them. It's a bit like you know. Um, the, those Caribbean nations that adopt uh, the U.S. dollar as their currency and and just assume that U.S. monetary policy will always work in their favor. And the U.S. can and does and has taken decisions in its monetary policy that has been really, really bad for countries that use the U.S. dollar as their de facto currency, not because it wanted to harm them, but just because it didn't care if they mm -hmm. did. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, send all, I ask everyone to 
you can I, I send all my music i put my music on these channels like you do with your like a I treat it like a twitter or something but then i i try right. to get everyone to buy music on the website so that they they go because yep i think you need like three three million yep. streams a month to be to get minimum wage or something like that it's like that sounds about right i mean i guess you need to ask yourself how many uh what is the total number of radio listeners? Because that's what a stream mm -hmm. is, right? You would have had to have be exposed to your music before you could make mm -hmm. a living, right? And it, it may be not much off from three million. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's the like it's the direct comparison is the wrong is the wrong one. You know, the it's like the comparison of listeners to you know records sold. It's more like listeners to radio plays, and you know, if you're if you're on a mid-sized market radio station. You know, if you're on Memphis radio or something here, even in the golden age, I don't know. I don't know how many ears you would have to have hear your music before you were earning minimum wage. My guess is it's a big mm -hmm. number. It may not be the, as big. And certainly there's more money to be had than is than is landing in your pocket because of the shenanigans that we see with with um, the way that big labels relate to the streamers. But still. Okay. Well, thanks, Corey. This has been great. I've really got a lot from this. So, uh, all right. Great stuff. Well, thank you. Time for me to get on my next call. Yes, for sure. I'll talk to you later. You're a machine. Yeah. <laughs> Bye. 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 Big tech monopolies are on the march, acting improperly. Working for the government and sucking us in They capitalize on me I thought I was protected, pretty much hit But they've got more power than the Stasi ever did But I don't want Big Brother controlling my fate Roll back the surveillance Swim both ways, I can't see back But I've welcomed them into my home Along with DRMs and illegal maze So I can't even open things I own Am I a censor or something to be sensed? The smart city's watching me and they know I'm against I don't want Big Brother deciding my fate Roll back the surveillance I've seen the sum of it No good can come of it Stories like these Always end unhappily Democracy dies Everyone cries Behind closed doors Then descend emphatically But I don't want Big Brother Deciding my fate Roll back the surveillance In a world without scarcity I'm doing alright I've every necessity Every need met enough security Except the basic right to be free I thought I was protected Pretty much hit But 
they've got more power than the Stasi ever did But I don't want Big Brother deciding that thing Roll back the surveillance Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review on your podcast app. If you'd like to hear the song again, just go to Spotify, Deezer, iTunes, stream it till your heart's content, or even better, because 1,000 streams buys me a cup of coffee, is to pay $1 on podsongs.com. And all that money goes to pay for the musicians, Maurizio Sanicola and Massimino Bozza, and my researcher, Dory Verber and a cup of coffee. All right, thanks very much. See you next time.